This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org ut. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. All right, y'all, I want to tell you a little bit about our speaker for tonight, and then uh, Thomas Fitch is going to to do the scripture reading, and then I'll hand it over to Russ. But Russ Whitfield is a pastor uh, at Grace Mosaic Church in Washington, D.C. Russ, we actually got some UT kids headed your way this this fall, so get ready. Uh, That's right, hook them. Uh, Russ is, uh, has been a huge blessing to me personally. Uh, I, I've, I've learned a lot from him and his preaching in the last couple of years. One of the things that I love about Russ, and it's something that's really hard to do, it's what the Apostle Paul talks about when he says uh, we're called to speak the truth in love. It's really easy to, uh, to speak love but not the truth. It's also, um, as we see all the time on social media, it's, uh, a lot of people like to speak the truth without love. Um, and, and also it's possible to have truth and love in your heart, but not speak. And one of the things that, uh, that's really blessed me and challenged me. And I think the Lord has used to sanctify me has been Russ's preaching and the way that he, he speaks the truth in love. And, and I'm really thankful for, uh, for the way that you faithfully done that brother. And I'm thankful for you being here, uh, to do that with us tonight. Um, Russ, as I said, is, uh, is the pastor at Grace Mosaic, but he's also the director of cross-cultural engagement for RUF. And he's really leading RUF in a lot of ways uh, as we think about how we can engage with all kinds of people and, and be a welcoming place uh, as a ministry uh, at the college campus and as an extension of the church to the college campus. And, uh, and Russ, we thank you for leading us in that. So uh, really glad to have you here tonight. And uh, I'm going to let Thomas Fitch take over now and read the scripture and then it'll be all you. All right. Tonight's scripture reading. Uh, comes from Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for uh, 
for having me this evening. Uh, thanks, John, for your kind words and for uh, the invitation to come uh, to join y'all through Zoom. Um, I'm sure that y'all are pretty Zoomed out these days, but, um, but uh, I'm not going to hold you long. But I, I do think that these are important times for God's people to really be dialed in on the things that are most important. Uh, I'm sure that you can see um, when you look at social media, when you look at everything that's happening in our country and in our world right now, um, now is an, imp an important as a time as, as ever uh, for God's people to be uh, locked in on the main thing, uh, to be about our Father's business, and to have a, a clear sense of who we are to be and um, how our lives are supposed to unfold in this world, particularly as it relates to our neighbors. Um, so I, I, I want tonight, we're going to talk about neighbor love. And uh, I understand you've been walking through the parables of Jesus. And tonight we're going to go through uh, what I think is one of the most iconic parables that Jesus told. And I think it is extraordinarily important, uh, the message of this parable, uh, for your life right now in this world. So let me pray, and then uh, we'll get going. Father, I thank you for these friends, for the work that you've been doing in their lives. I thank you for your grace poured out upon them in abundance through Jesus. And I ask that tonight uh, they would find your word to be particularly um, poignant for their lives. I pray that you would meet them in their questions, in their fatigue, in their in anxieties, in their fears. I pray that you would embolden them to be kingdom people in this world. I pray that you would help them to shine as light. I pray that you'd help them to be salt uh, in this world. I pray that they would have a bigger vision for their lives and for their their place in the work of the kingdom than maybe they've had before. And I pray that you would give direction and, and motivation to them to, um, to step out fearlessly and courageously to love their neighbors. Pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So listen, a few years ago, my family plotted on me and for Christmas, they bought me a Fitbit. Now, here's the thing. I didn't ask for anybody's Fitbit. I didn't put it on my list. I didn't go sit on Santa's lap and ask for Fitbit. My family plotted on me, and they bought me this, this Fitbit. Now, if you don't know what a Fitbit is, it's this, it's this little watch that, that keeps track of the number of steps that you take in a day. And the program that comes with Fitbit is automatically programmed to be in line with the American Heart Association's metric that you have to walk 10,000 steps per day in order to have a healthy heart. Now, in my mind, I was healthy. But every day that I wore this Fitbit, I would keep getting these notifications, these little encouragements at the end of the day that would say something like, you're only 9,000 steps away from your goal. Keep going. You can do it. In other words, like every day it told me of how short I was falling of the standard of 10,000 steps that the American Heart Association says that I have to walk in order to have a healthy heart. 
So here's what I did. I figured out a way to go in to the program and to change the program to, to move the goal down from 10,000 steps to 1,000 steps. I, I went into the program and reduced the demands to what I was already doing. I, I figured out this strategy about how to avoid the demands of the American Heart Association. And now the notifications were popping up and telling me every day, keep going, Rush, you're doing great. You beat your goal by 50 steps. Good work, you're on a roll. And I even had the nerve after a month to say to my wife, hey babe, I got 30 days of meeting my step goal. You see, here's the deal. The standard of Fitbit did not suit me. So I just reduced the demands. I avoided the demands and adjusted them to a place that I could meet those demands. And I actually fooled myself into thinking that I could have a healthy heart by walking just a few steps a day. But really, I was just avoiding the standard to my own detriment. Now, here's the deal. We may not have asked for it, but the Lord has given us a standard of neighbor love, of cross-cultural love that is required to have a healthy heart before God. And every time you turn to the scriptures, you get the notification, you get the encouragement to press on toward that goal of neighbor love because you're not taking the steps. We're not meeting that standard. And so God's word continually comes in and says, keep on going, keep on pressing toward this goal of neighbor love, toward this God-given standard of what it means to love your neighbors and serve your neighbors. But we've all figured out ways to reinterpret the scriptures, to, to, to change the program of scripture to, to reduce the demands of neighbor love, because the standard of God does not suit us. We'll even use our theology to reduce the standard down to what we're already doing. And we've fooled ourselves into thinking that we can have a healthy heart by simply loving those who love us back or by only loving those who are like us, who, who share our cultural preferences, who vote like us. We, we have fooled ourselves. We have changed the metric and we have fooled ourselves into thinking that we can have a healthy heart before God by just loving those people. And we even have the nerve to boast about the heroism of our heritage and how good our theology is, and all this is to our own detriment. So this evening, we're gonna look at this iconic parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're gonna unpack this text through two points. We're gonna see the call to neighbor love and the cost of neighbor love. The call to neighbor love and the cost of neighbor love. So let's look at our first point, the call to neighbor love. Now I want you to look at the text. I want you to, I want you to continually be referencing the text because I want you to understand this is a textual sermon, okay? This is from God's word. Now, if you look at verse 25, what you'll notice is that we're not given much by way of a setting, but we're, we're all of a sudden invited into a discussion that Jesus is having with a lawyer. And at this time, a lawyer was a, it meant an expert in the Mosaic law. It was a Bible expert. 
um, these guys knew everything that the rabbis and the Jewish leaders of the day had said about the Bible. And, and Jesus is having a conversation with this guy. And, and this lawyer rises to ask Jesus the most pressing theological question of the day. And that question was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And by asking this question, what the lawyer was trying to do is he was trying to find out where Jesus stood. He was trying to figure out if Jesus was some kind of radical extremist or, or, or if he was an orthodox teacher of scripture. This was sort of like his little test for Jesus. And in verses 26 through 27, Jesus responds with a question about what the scriptures teach on the matter. And the lawyer answers with the central confession of faithful Jews. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And basically what this was is this is sort of like a summary. It pulls from Deuteronomy 6 and it pulls from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And it was in this way that the, the Jewish teachers summarized what the entirety of the scriptures taught. Love for God and love for neighbor. And in verse 28, you'll notice, Jesus, Jesus says, that's right. Do this and you will live. And by responding this way, Jesus is showing the lawyer that he honors the teaching of the Jewish tradition. But when the lawyer asks, and who is my neighbor? Jesus is going to press this lawyer to explore this idea more deeply. And here's why. Judaism recognized that we were created to love God and to love God's image, i.e. our neighbor. The Jewish people reasoned that if you were really going to love God, then you had to love God's image. That was, just, that was just fundamental to the way that they thought about the call to love. However, they had two primary ways of getting around that requirement. The first way was to isolate yourself from others so that you didn't feel the need to involve yourself with sinners and those who were difficult to love. So they came up with all these extra laws about how they should keep themselves clean from sinners and stay away from those people and those corrupt, immoral people. They needed to stay away from them. That was one of the ways that they evaded the deeper call of neighbor love. And the second way was to justify yourself. So you could either isolate yourself, you stay away from those people, you never run into them, you have your own pathways, you have your own social uh, circles, you don't really run into those immoral sinners out there. That's one way to avoid the call to neighbor love. The second way, after isolating yourself, was to justify yourself. And you can see this in verse 29. Take a look at verse 29. The lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And on the face of it, it may seem like a sincere question. It may even seem like an innocent question. But Luke actually gives us the man's intent. You notice it in the text. But he, desiring to justify himself, asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And what we see is that the lawyer is trying to get around the original intent of the neighbor love requirement by reducing the demands to what he is already doing. The, the lawyer is trying to get around the neighbor love requirement 
by shrinking the scope of his responsibility to his current practice, what he was already doing. He's looking for the bare minimum requirement. He's lowering the bar so far down that he can say, I've done that. Because here's the thing, and I want you to hear this. In the lawyer's mind, everybody couldn't be a neighbor. Definitely not those people from that neighborhood. Definitely not those people who voted in that way. In his mind, you had neighbors and then you had non-neighbors. Neighbors were good, decent folks and non-neighbors were those people. There were people you had to love and pay attention to and then there were people that you could safely ignore. Now think about this. No doubt, this lawyer had recently come across morally broken people in need. And he said, hmm, non-neighbor. He, he had no doubt come across racially different people who were in need. And he said, hmm, non-neighbor. It's possible that on that very day that he had this conversation with Jesus, he came across ethnically different people in need and he said, hmm, non-neighbor, hey, you know, I'm pretty good at this neighbor love thing. I'm obedient to the great commandment. Do you, do you see the craziness here? Obviously, anybody could call themselves obedient to the call to neighbor love if they tagged every difficult case and every one of those people as non-neighbor. If, if I had the opportunity to name all of the difficult people as non-neighbors or all of the people who, it was just very difficult for me to get out of my comfort zone and to take risks in order to love and serve. If I could just classify them as non-neighbors and I could classify all the people who were easy for me to love, all the people that I, I delighted to be around as my neighbors, then of course I could make it seem like I was faithful to the call to neighbor love. But what we're going to see through the rest of this text is that these were barriers to the kind of neighbor love and indiscriminate compassion that God, God called his people to demonstrate. These were barriers, this, this categorizing people as non-neighbors. Functionally, they're non-neighbors. This was a barrier to the kind of love that God had in mind for his community. Jesus isn't going to let him off the hook. He isn't going to allow him to soften the demands of neighbor love or to reason the demands away. Because essentially, when he says, and who is my neighbor, what he's saying, he's like, all right, come on. Be reasonable, Jesus. I mean, <laughs> I, I, don't have to, I don't have to love those people, right? I mean, not the, not the Democrats, not, not the Republicans. I mean, Jesus, do I really have to love the Black Lives Matter people? I mean, I mean G Jesus, you, know, you can't be serious that I, I actually have to, to love people who, who dabble in, in white nationalism, right? Like, I can't, you can't possibly expect me to love people like that, Jesus. But Jesus isn't going to allow him off the hook. He isn't even going to allow him to have the category of non-neighbor at all. In verses 
30 through 33, if you look at the text, Jesus moves in on this man with a parable. Jesus loved to tell stories. And one of the reasons why I love that you guys are walking through the parables right now is because it's something really powerful for us to understand about the way that we care for people and we minister to people, the way that we bring truth to people. Jesus did not often use uh, theological discourse that was like scholastic, logic-chopping kind of engagement with people. What he often did is he told people stories. And Jesus was a master storyteller. He was able to tell stories that taught truth. And he was able to get inside of other people's stories by the way that he used stories. And a lot of times Jesus was very comfortable just leaving people in the tension of a story and allowing God to work on them through their experience of the tension of the story rather than quickly resolving it for them or trying to beat people over the head or argue them into the kingdom. And so that's an important, an important thing we need to see about the, the method of Jesus. He's a master storyteller, even in the way that he preached. He was always telling stories. And that's exactly what Jesus does with this lawyer. He moves in on this man with a story. And he tells the story of a certain man who's making a treacherous journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you're not familiar with the terrain, the geography over there, the topography, um, it, was, it was a very, very steep journey down mountains that were very rugged and, and very dangerous when you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. You're coming essentially down a mountain with all these little secret hidden passes. And along this journey, there were lots of places where uh, bandits and robbers would often hide out and wait to attack people who were unsuspecting. So people often traveled in caravans. They had community. They had to do that for the sake of protection so that they weren't robbed or taken advantage of on that journey. But in this story, Jesus is telling the story of a man who falls victim to some of these robbers who were hiding out on that, on that passageway. And this man is robbed. He's stripped and beaten and he's left for dead. And what you see is that this man I, you know, just, it's important to note, this man doesn't have a theological problem. He has a social problem. He has a material problem. He has been robbed. He has been physically beaten. His problem goes beyond spiritual matters. We're not told anything of the man's spiritual condition. In fact, the assumption is that this is a Jewish man. The assumption is that this would, this would have been a respectable Jewish man who would have warranted help from any of his fellow countrymen. But what is the reaction to this scene? The question that looms over this story as Jesus is telling it, as it's developing, the question in our minds is, who will respond to this man in dire need? Who's going to respond? Who's going to help him? And as Jesus tells the story, Along comes the next character in the story, and it's a priest. We have a man lying on the side of the road, half dead after having been beaten by robbers and taken advantage of and left for dead. And along comes a priest. 
And as we're listening to the story, we're thinking, yes, someone is coming to help him. And it's a priest. Of course, the priest is going to help him. This, this is a note of optimism. God's servant, the one who ministers in the temple and represents the height of spirituality, is coming by. What will he do? He'll pass on by. No motive is given. We're not given any rationale. We're, the, the man very well may have had good reasons in his mind for passing by on the other side. He, he may have been in the process of, of some very important ministry responsibilities. He was a priest. Maybe he was trying to maintain his ritual purity. Uh, we, don't, we don't know why he passes by, because that's not the point. The point is that he, it does not matter why he didn't help the man. It simply points out the ugliness of the fact that he did nothing. The point is that he gave no help. And then we meet the next character in the story, and it's a Levite. Now, this is another exemplary spiritual man. This man also served in the temple. I want you to imagine it like these are pastors coming by. The first guy is like the senior pastor coming by. And the senior pastor comes by, and we think, it's a pastor. He's going to help. And the pastor goes by. And then after that, a deacon is coming by. Another exemplary spiritual person. And what does the Levite do? He walks on by on the other side. And the drama thickens as we see the ugly outcome of the lawyer's position in story form. Because do you see what Jesus is doing? What Jesus is doing is he's showing the lawyer what his theology looks like in story form. Remember, the lawyer wanted to have the category of neighbor and non-neighbor. The, the, the lawyer wanted to reduce the demands of neighbor love down to the point that it was comfortable and easy for him to achieve. And so by having this category of non-neighbor, these people that you can safely write off, he's showing this man through the priest and the lawyer. He, this is what your theology really looks like, Mr. Lawyer. And it's ugly. It's ugly. This is what it looks like when you believe that you can safely classify someone as a non-neighbor. And as listeners, we are aching and wondering, who will help this dying man who is going to help this man who has been physically beaten and robbed and left for dead? And then we meet the next character in the story. And when Jesus moves from a priest to a Levite, and then he hits a Samaritan, they're very likely was an audible gasp from the crowd. <gasps> a Samaritan? Those people? Because the Samaritans were despised by every self-respecting Jew. They, they despised these people. They were, they were ethnic half-breeds. They, they were spiritually 
off the rails. But everything changes. Jesus intentionally makes this despised man the hero of the story. Everything changes as this new man arrives on the scene. But he's not who we expected. This is a completely unexpected climax for the lawyer. The despised person becomes the hero. The despised person comes to the rescue. The despised person outshines the best that this lawyer's tribe had to offer. Because you got to remember, the assumption is that this was a Jewish man lying on the side of the road. And his own people wouldn't help him. But the one that should have looked at him lying half dead, spit upon him, and kept moving, the one who should have ridiculed him because all he ever faced from his people was ridicule and, 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 and harsh words and, and, and terrible treatment, the one that should have completely disregarded him and left him for dead is the one that comes to his rescue. And by the time the story ends, the call to neighbor love is landing forcefully upon the lawyer. And it should land forcefully upon us. It should land with even greater authority on us and lead us to repentance. Let me ask you this. How do you respond to the hurting, needy people that you regularly encounter? How do you respond to those who are on the social margins? It doesn't take much imagination to think about who those people are, to identify those people who are on the social margins. How do you respond to them? How do you respond to people who are crying out for help, crying out for justice, crying out for change because they feel crushed by despair? The call of Jesus to you is to be their neighbor, to show them neighbor love. And any refusal, any excuses, any attempts to evade that call is doing exactly what the lawyer did. And who is my neighbor? You know, that question could easily be replaced with the question today. And what is social justice? What is justice? You see, those questions that we ask to try and reduce the demands, to try and evade the responsibility that we have before God, the clear, plain, 101 teaching of the Christian faith. Jesus is calling you to be the neighbor of those who are crying out, those who are broken, those who are living in despair those who are facing difficult financial circumstances, those who are, who are without a friend. Jesus is calling you to be their neighbor. This is the call. But we have to see the second point, the cost of neighbor love. Let's look at this point, the cost of neighbor love. Verse 33, look at the text. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. This is the response of the This is the response of the Samaritan. And the response of the Samaritan 
is Jesus' way of showing you the way that neighbor love is supposed to work. And, and what we see are six concrete actions of the Samaritan, if you're, if you're working down through the text. Let me list them for you. Just, just work down through the text. You'll see them. Six concrete actions of the Samaritan. One, he comes up to him. He realizes this is not something that can be done at a distance. He has to actually move toward the man. He, he gets close to the man. There is proximity. He, he's in the same space as the man. This isn't a commuter job. He comes up to him. Two, he dresses his wounds, likely tearing his own clothes to make bandages. Three, he anoints the cuts with oil and wine in order to cleanse those wounds. And by doing that, he deprives himself of refreshment in order to care for the man. Four, he loads the man on his own mule. He goes without relief for the rest of this journey so that he can provide relief for the man. He considers his neighbor better than himself. Five, he takes this man to an inn. And he doesn't just leave him where he finds him. Six, and he provides care and comfort to the man. He doesn't dump him and leave. He stays the night to care for him. He, he shows true, genuine care and concern for this man, a tenderness toward this man. His heart is soft toward the man to the point that he's willing to put himself out in order to be sure that he has done everything in his power to see him made well. He pays the cost up front for the inn and ensures continued care for the man. It's enough for 24 days in a hotel. Think about that. He assumes total cost for the man's recovery. And then in verse 36, Jesus finishes off this encounter with a bang. He turns to the lawyer and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? <laughs> the answer, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even get the word Samaritan out of his mouth. He so despises those people. And he is so upset that Jesus has used the people he despises in order to expose him for the fraud that he is. And then Jesus simply says to him, you go and do likewise. Now, here's the thing. We, every time you and I read the Bible, there's something important that needs to happen, y'all. You need to read the Bible with an awareness of the fact that you're an American. And you read the Bible with American sensibilities, American assumptions, American starting points, American blind spots, American axioms, American epistemologies. In other words, you have to demonstrate some some self-suspicion, some self-interrogation when it comes to the way you, you read the scriptures and you apply the scriptures to your life. You seek to obey the scriptures. And thinking through our American blind spots and all of the American uniquenesses as it relates to our engagement with scripture, I think we often start with the wrong idea when it comes to neighbor love. We typically think something like this. Okay, how can I do what Jesus is calling us to do 
without altering my lifestyle? How can I give like this without really having to, to give up anything of great value or importance to me? How can I help people without imposing too much on my own freedoms and enjoyments? You know, I have a pretty active social life and I have a pretty important social circle that I, I need to maintain. So how can I do the Jesus thing and, and keep all of my uh, accoutrements? How can I find the painless, costless way of loving neighbors? And the answer to all these questions is you can't. You can't. Not if you're going to do it like Jesus says it must be done. <laughs> now, imagine the lawyer walking away stunned. Walking away from Jesus stunned. And if you and I are really getting the scope of what Jesus says is required of us, then we too should be stunned. Because remember, th this whole discussion began with a question relating to how one inherits eternal life. In other words, this is really serious. This is a very serious issue. This is not a secondary issue. And when we look at the wholehearted devotion and love that Jesus says is required of us, and we think about who we are, it should cause us to tremble. This is a powerful rebuke of our tame, sluggish, Americanized, bare minimum approach to neighbor love, which is just an expression of our small love for God. And once you clearly hear the call of neighbor love and clearly see the cost of neighbor love, you rightly ask yourself, who can do this? Who could possibly do this? And the answer comes to us in the gospel. You see, the only way that you can love your neighbor like this is if you are first the loved neighbor. You must know yourself to be one such neighbor who was loved by Jesus. You know, the, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that Jesus didn't look at you and say, hmm, non-neighbor, when humanity had leapt headlong into sin and misery and all of heaven was aching and wondering who will love these dying people, when the effects of the fall had left us all half dead, when our own bad decisions and constant attacks of the enemy had left us half dead, along came compassion from a most unexpected person. Don't you see? Compassion came from the God that you despised, and he should have seen you on the side of the road, half dead, and said, hmm, you're getting exactly what you deserve. You're getting exactly what you were asking for. All of your life has been leading up to this moment, and you're finally getting what you deserve. But that is not what Jesus did to you. The God that you despised became your rescuer. Along came compassion from the God you disregarded and rejected. And everything changed when the God-man arrived on the scene of your life. He's not who we expected. 
He was despised and rejected by men, but the despised and rejected one becomes the hero. The despised one comes to the rescue and he outshines the best that this world had to offer. And his response was to love the hurting. When we were far off, we weren't just on the social margins. When we were far off, we were beyond the social margins of triune fellowship. But he brought us near. He heard our cries and exchanged our despair for hope without fear of what it would cost him. Neighbor love in the kingdom is a response to a neighbor loving king. Do you see this? The only way you will ever excel or progress or grow in living out this call to neighbor love is by a deep awareness of the fact that you have become the beloved neighbor through Jesus Christ. He's the one who loved you when you were at your lowest, when you were beat down, when you were without God and without hope in the world. He came to you. He dressed our wounds. He anointed us with his spirit. He paid the cost for our care. And he never leaves us where he finds us, but brings us to shelter and provides for our ongoing care. He stays with us. He paid the cost up front, assuming total responsibility for our restoration. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this? Here are three quick applications I want to give you. How do you work this out? One, I want you to run all of your excuses to the gospel logic. I want you to ask yourself this question. The next time you see someone in need and you're tempted to just disregard it, look the other way, consider your own needs as more important than your neighbors, I want you to ask yourself the question, where would I be if Jesus had treated me like I want to treat this person? Where would I be? The answer would be lost, in destruction, in despair, mired in shame, in in grief. But thank God that's not how Jesus treated you. And let a present awareness of that good news drive you to get over yourself, to get over your little self-centered world your self-referential ways, and to give yourself away. You don't have to think less of yourself. You just have to think of yourself less. That's what Tim Keller says. I think that's a good word. That's what it looks like, to have a mind full of the other. The sound of someone who's increasing and growing in neighbor love is something like John the Baptist said, they must increase and I must decrease. In importance. I think to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength is to say God must increase. Christ must increase. I must decrease. And to love your neighbor is to say they must increase. I must decrease. Two, you must think about becoming over doing. Every morning when you wake up, the most important thing you have to deal with is not your to-do list. Every morning when you wake up, the most important question is not what do I have to do today? The most important question is, who must I become today? Because I am loved so deeply by the Lord God Almighty. Who must I become today? Because Father, Son, and Spirit 
love me with an unshakable, unbreakable, everlasting love. I must become more patient. I must become more free. I must become more gracious. I must become more joyful. I must become more gentle. I must become slower to speak. You see, all of those, all the virtues of the Christian life, that's who you must become because you're loved so deeply. So focus on doing, focus on becoming over doing. If you focus on doing to the neglect of becoming, then you'll basically do performative neighbor love. You'll do virtue signaling. You'll do enough to make people think you're a decent person or to keep people from shaming you, but really you'll be rotten inside. So focus on becoming. Finally, third, get real concrete and look at your calendar and look at your prayers. Uh, it often remains just a, a, a good idea to, to, to start to love neighbors and to be more open-hearted and to actually start to bend your life toward that call to neighbor love. But unless it makes it into your calendar, you, you aren't going to maintain it long-term. So think about it. If you want to love poor people, for example, but poor people are nowhere to be found in your calendar, you're probably not going to do a very good job at loving poor people. If you are trying to build friendships with black students or Latino students or Latina students or any other brown students from around the globe, if you don't have any space marked off in your calendar to try and pursue those relationships or make time for those relationships, then you're not going to have any of those relationships. It must make it into your calendar. I, I, I say this for myself as a pastor all the time. If it's not in my calendar, then I don't care about it. Not really. So put it in your calendar and also put it in your prayers. Uh, keep a prayer journal, not just to help your mind stay focused because it's a difficult day and age to keep your mind focused when you're used to clicking and swiping and all that kind of stuff on social media. Prayer journal is very helpful to keep your scattered mind focused, but also pray for those realities to come to pass. Pray for all the things that you're hoping to see. Pray for the courage and the boldness to be a neighbor loving person. Pray for God to expose the sin that you need to repent of and pray for God to grant you repentance by his grace so that you can walk in the newness of life. It takes all of these things to grow in this kind of neighbor love, but Jesus expects nothing less from his people. And the reason why Jesus expects nothing less from his people is because Jesus knows the kind of love that he's laid upon his people. And that kind of love warrants that reciprocated love back to him and that love flowing out to our neighbors. If you do this, if you take this call seriously, you will have immeasurable joy in your life. And not only that, all the things that we say we would like to see happen in RUF will start to happen. Yeah, you know, before diversity was on the mind of the university, before it was on social media and it was a popular sentiment, it was on God's heart. It began in the heart of a God who was one and three and three and one. This has always been God's plan. This is not about being politically correct. This is about following God. And this is about being conformed to the likeness of Christ because Jesus died to secure it. But if you start to pray these things and start to live into those prayers, I think that RUF at your respective campuses will look different. I think that how 
RUF at your respective campuses take shape in the coming years is going to be largely a response to the way that you work this out in these practical applications. So I pray that the Lord would encourage you to see fruit and to know above and beyond everything that as you lay your head on your pillow tonight, that this is the kind of love that has been set upon you by Jesus, the greater Samaritan. And may his love compel you to live in that love toward your neighbors. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the good news. We are so grateful. We ask that you would help us to open our hearts and our minds to receive that love so that we can extend that love. Pray that my friends would hear this tonight and they would walk in this love and their lives would be marked by it and that they would not be afraid because perfect love casts out fear and you have loved us with a perfect love. So I pray for fearlessness and courage and boldness and creativity and wisdom and guidance and discernment as they try to work this out on their campuses. I pray that you watch over them and their families, keep them safe during this time of uh, pandemic. Um, Lord, and I pray that you would keep them until we get to see each other face to face one day. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.